welcome to our second um, Jepson Talks. Um, Jepson Talks are an opportunity um, sponsored by the Alumni Experience Committee, the Jepson Alumni Corps, for alumni to hear from past and present Jepson faculty. Uh, these talks give faculty the chance to share their research, knowledge, and experience, and it also allows alumni to both learn about faculty who were at Jepson before or after their time and find out more about what their favorite professors are doing. Our first Jepson talk was back in May when Dr. Sigmund and Hoyt talked about their work, their time at Jepson and their faculty collaboration. Tonight, we have a chance to hear from Jepson deans, past and present, both about their journeys at Jepson and Jepson's journey to date. So I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, uh, Don, who's gonna introduce um, our panelists. Hello, everyone. I'm Don Helvish, and I get to serve as the uh, co-chair, along with Renee, as the uh, Alumni Engagement uh, Committee Chair um, for the Jepson Alumni Corps. Uh, I'm going to start by introducing our current dean, uh, Dr. Sandra Peart. Uh, she became our dean uh, of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies in August of 2007. In August 2018, she was appointed to the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Professorship in Leadership Studies. She became president of the Jepson Scholars Foundation in 2019. She's immediate past president of the International Adam Smith Society and a past president of the History of Economic Society, where she began the Young Scholars Program. Since 2018, she has been a Reform Club member and a Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce Fellow. Uh, Dean Peart has written or edited 11 books, including her most recent book, The Essential John Stuart Mill, which uh, was published in 2021, and two books she co-authored with David Levy, uh, Towards an Economics of Natural Equals, a documentary history of the early Virginia school, which was published in 2020, and Escape from Democracy, the role of experts in the pub and the public um, in economic policy, which was published in 2017. She is the author of more than 100 articles in the areas of constitutional political economy, leadership and experimental settings, ethics and economics, uh, and the transition to modern economic thought. Her popular articles on leadership, ethics, higher education, and economic themes have appeared in the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, USA Today, and the Washington Post. Dr. Peart obtained her doctorate in economics from the University of Toronto in 1989. She began her career as an assistant professor of economics at the College of William and Mary, and then joined the faculty at Baldwin Wallace University. She was a visiting scholar at the Center for Study of Public Choice at George Mason University in 2004 and 2005. And the following year, she was a fellow of the American Council on Education. And as, as I said, she is our current dean. And her immediate predecessor joins us, uh, uh, Dr. Kenneth Ruscio. Uh, and uh, he served as our dean of the Jepson School from 2002 through 2006. Um, Dr. Ruscio is an accomplished uh, higher education administrator in Virginia uh, for more than 25 years. Uh, he served as president, uh, currently serves as president emeritus uh, of Washington and Lee University, and he rejoined Jepson um, back in January 2019 as a senior distinguished lecturer. Immediately prior to returning to the Jepson School, Dr. Ruscio served as president of the Virginia Foundation for Independent Colleges from 2017 to 2018. He served as president of Washington and Lee University from 2006 to 2016 after leaving us uh, uh, from serving the, uh, as the dean of the Jepson School. 
He held both faculty and staff positions at Washington and Lee from 1987 to 2002, including Professor of Politics, Associate Dean of the Williams School of Commerce, Economics and Politics, as Dean of, and as Dean of Freshman. Uh, from 2016-2017, he served as the Jefferson School's leader in residence. Dr. Ruscio has led and served on numerous academic, professional, and civic committees, including as president of the National Leadership Society, Omicron Delta Kappa, and as board chairman of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. An expert on dem democratic theory and public policy, an author of The Leadership Dilemma in Modern Democracy, Dr. Ruscio teaches courses focused on democracy, its history and principles, political leadership, and how these topics are used to interpret the current state of affairs in American democracy. Welcome, Deans Ruscio and Deans Peart. So to kick us off, we're going to start with the same question we asked um, uh, Dr. Hoyt and Dr. Hickman. What brought you to the Jepson School? Sandra, you're first. <laughs> <laughs> And, okay, thank you. Sorry, I was having trouble unmuting myself. Um, so thanks very much. So, thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, uh, certainly, uh, we have had distinguished deans. <laughs> now I'm talking about Ken Ruscio uh, at the <laughs> Jefferson School. Um, so I will just say that um, I came to the Jefferson School because I knew about how wonderful this school was. I had learned about it uh, through... Um, uh, my research and various activities at Baldwin-Wallace when we were setting up a leadership uh, program, a leadership studies program, uh, and Jepson very quickly rose to the, the top. Um, uh, and um, I had been thinking about moving into an administrative role, although I wasn't planning to do so um, in the year that I came to the Jepson School. But when Jepson called, um, it was such a wonderful opportunity that I just decided that um, I would move my son a year um, before I had planned to do so. Um, uh, he was not yet at that point in high school, so it was a little tricky as as a you know personal matter moving him. But he uh, came to love Virginia, and it's now his home. And um, I came here and stayed. I tell people I have the best job at the University of Richmond, and I believe that. Uh, that's a little bit about why I'm here. Students, the faculty, uh, and I'll say the alumni as well. So. Ken. Well, you know, my, my story is um, not dissimilar from, from Sandra's in some ways. Um, you know, I can recall when I got here, um, we had uh, a meeting of the deans uh, in the summer, kind of our summer retreat before the year started. And um, at some point in that meeting, one of the other deans uh, leaned across uh, to me and said, not, uh, Sandra, that I had the best job at the University of Richmond, but I had the best job in higher education. <laughs> and it made me um, sort of stop and think. I, I knew I stepped into a good situation, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought he was probably right. And, and I think, you know, the reason um, is, uh, it, you know, I, I think those of us who are connected to Jepson sometimes um, forget just how distinctive it really is. Um, you know, in the world of higher education, uh, for all the you know, uh, targets of we're so progressive in higher education and we're so 
liberal. <laughs> We're actually very conservative institutions. You know, we don't change very much, and um, we get locked into pretty conventional boundaries. And a, a place like Jepson throws all that out the window. It, it kind of says, um, you know, we're just interested in, in deep questions. Um, and sometimes uh, it really pays with those deep questions to have economists there and psychologists there and um, political scientists over here and philosophers there and historians there coming around. Um, just questions that really matter, not, not matter for our disciplines, but matter for the world. And so I had not planned to move. I was very comfortable in a faculty position at a place I loved very much. Um, but, you know, when, when you have a chance to not only be in the middle of something like that, but to, to really uh, help shape it and, and be influenced by it, um, uh, you know, it's really something you, you can't turn down at, at a certain point in your career. So I think Sandra and I, had very similar stories to tell about that. So. And I'll just add one uh, couple of words to that, which is that Bob Jepson, um, when he first started the school and, and on many occasions since, has remarked that we should dare to be different. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's very much in line with what Ken just said. Um, he wanted a school that was different. And the reason um, that I found it so fascinating to be here over the years is it continues to be different and it really does make um, the University of Richmond stand out. So, mm -hmm. so I, I have your second question. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're talking about the time span between 2002 to now. What stayed the same at Jepson and what's changed? Uh, Go ahead, Sandy. So I, I think I would say, um, well, the interest in leadership, those, those deep questions that um, Ken just mentioned, um, you know, is a thread that, that we never shy away from. You know, it, it's what unites our faculty. We differ on so many things, you know, so I'm an economist. I have a different sort of methodological perspective than an historian might or an English literature professor. But we all agree that, you know, we can bring these perspectives, disciplinary perspectives to a, you know, a really interesting set of questions uh, about leadership. Um, so that I think is, is what's common. I would as well mention, you know, just really good teachers, wonderful scholarship, great students and, and good alumni, you know, so those things um, uh, are all again, common over the years. Um, couple of things that have changed and then I'll let Ken, um, Ken may have a better perspective on this since he was here earlier, left and then came back. So he, he may be able to say some things that have changed and, and also remain the same. We have grown uh, over the years. So we just admitted a new class. We had a wonderful prelude ceremony um, last week and admitted 99 sophomores and three juniors. Um, that's a much larger class than we used to. I think we still have a good community feeling and and um, uh, we're not too large, but we have certainly grown over the years. Um, we've added disciplinary sort of breadth as a result of the faculty growing. Um, they haven't grown as fast as the student body, but, but they have as well grown. 
Um, uh, another difference um, that some of you would notice is that if you were to come back is that many of the, what we call the founding faculty, uh, and then even some of the second wave of faculty uh, have retired now uh, or will retire soon. Um, so, and that that's something that keeps me awake at night because they're wonderful and I need to, we need to, we as a group uh, at the school need to think really carefully about how to fill in um, behind them and, and honor them as they retire and so on. Yeah, and I, I would just, uh, well, I, I should say as quick aside, I, I told Sandra a few days ago that um, she's been dean uh, four times longer than I've been dean, so she gets 80% of the airtime in our discussion here. Okay. But, um, but but I, I will say, uh, you know, Sandra mentioned it, I'm in this sort of interesting uh, perspective of having um, been here for four years, but then like Rip Van Winkle going off for about 10 years and then, you know, 10 or 12 years and then coming back and taking a look at things. And, and, and I think, you know, if I had to um, say one thing that has definitely not changed, it's the, uh, well, maybe two things. It, it's the spirit of the place has not changed uh, at, at all. Um, I, I'm looking at uh, the names who are on here tonight and, and I see some members of uh, the class that I taught and am teaching right now. And, and I can tell you the students are as sharp, as um, inquisitive, as curious, um, as engaged as, as I remembered them back in the early 2000s. And, um, uh, and, and the faculty too, uh, contributing to the spirit of that place, even though Sandra noted uh, there's the inevitable um, uh, transition, uh, generational transition that goes on. Um, it, the other thing that that I think hasn't changed is really the quality of of what happens here. I, I I'm astounded at um, the faculty creativity uh, that that they um, exhibit. Um, it, it, you know, again, going back to what I was saying before, the um, faculty in higher education often have to um, get on the train, the disciplinary train, and do things that are called contributions to the discipline. And our faculty certainly do that. Um, but they're also very creative in, in kind of going outside those boundaries. And I think that that's uh, really been, been great uh, to see. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there have been what I would call dramatic changes. The philosophy still endures. It plays out a little bit differently. The intent of the school still seems um, to be very much what it was um, back, back when I was first here. Um, so there, there's change to be sure, but there's a lot of continuity and stability to be sure as well. One thing I might add is um, when Ken was dean, the school began, I think, began, or at least more seriously began to integrate across the university, uh, team teaching, faculty team teaching with people outside the school and, and um, you know, offering courses that were open to non-Jepson students and so on. 
earlier on my sense, and now this is from reading historical documents and so on, but earlier on when the school was first founded, uh, I think it was a little more insular. insular. Um, in part, that was just because the faculty had to concentrate so hard on how to create a curriculum out of nothing, you know. So they, you know, they were working in the basement of of um, a nearby administrative building, you know, trying to put that curriculum together and so on, and working very hard. They didn't have the energy uh, or the ability to go out and then teach across the university. But I think once that curriculum was a little bit more solidified, by the time Ken became dean. Um, the faculty were more self-assured and able to teach, as I say, and reach out uh, to colleagues across the university and become more widely accepted in the University of Richmond. Um, and that's something that, you know, through Ken's um, decanal years and mine, we've continued. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think it's a great point, Sandra, I, because um, certainly when I came in 2002, so I came uh, for the 10th anniversary, if you can believe that, my first year was the 10th anniversary. Um, there was still uh, on on campus um, skepticism, maybe the charitable word, but um, maybe even uh, lingering opposition. You know, uh, the, the the academic enterprise of Jepson School of Leadership Studies was not. Uh, necessarily greeted with a lot of enthusiasm um, in some parts of the university. Um, and there was still some of that when I came in its 10th year. Um, and, and I think some of that too, you know, we think about Sandra's uh, predecessors and mine. Um, you know, Sandra and I are kind of the um, liberal artsy types. Uh, our predecessors were uh, you know, from the military background and from a business school. And, and the, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. They're great, great um, traditions and everything. But I think within the university, uh, that was, uh, they were still not comfortable. Those in the liberal arts disciplines were still not quite sure uh, where, um, where Jepson was headed with all of this. And uh, and I think that has changed now. I, I think you know, Jepson really is, as, as you've said, Sandra, uh, seen as the jewel in the crown. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is something that the university is uh, very, very proud of, and rightly so. And I think faculty across the university are also proud of it as well. Well, thank you both for sharing those comments. Um, would you guys mind sharing um, one of your fondest memories, um, uh, maybe an anecdote, something that, that you hold dear um, in, in your time as Dean? Yeah. You want me to go first this time, Sandra? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> so I, I, um, I've got one, I've got two or three uh, and, and I'm, you know, that I saw that question on your list ahead of time and, and Boy, I jumped right to it. So um, let me go through them pretty quickly, but I think they're, they're representative of, of some of the things that I really like about Jepson. So the first is um, we uh, did something uh, for the first time during my time as Dean that, that is now a, an annual um, uh, thing, which is a visit to the Gettysburg battlefield. And um, in, in part of that, the, the day ends 
with uh, all of the students walking up the hill of Pickett's Charge. And, and the person who was our tour guide asked us to imagine what it would be like to be a soldier marching up that hill to your near certain death. And one of the Jepson students just turned to me and said, um, couldn't they have just worked something out? And, I, you know, I thought <laughs> it, it was in a way a kind of charming thing, but it was a kind of um, evidence that she definitely was kind of immersing herself in this, um, this really sort of tragic, challenging uh, thing. And, and the idea of being there, of, of being in the moment, and, and just that sort of natural reaction to something was, for whatever reason, it, it just has remained with me for, for so long. It tells you a lot about the education, but also about the students that I think we have and how they think. But the other, the other two things have to do with um, some public events that we had. Um, and one uh, was, and I'll never forget this uh, as long as I live, um, we had um, a, a, one of the Jepson Forum events where I got to moderate, and I put that in quotes, um, a discussion between George McGovern and Bob Dole. And when I say moderate in quotes, I think I asked the opening question and just sat back and watched two um, highly opinionated people engage in civil, um, uh, spirited discourse, um, you know, articulate, funny, um, principled, um, you know, people who enjoyed being, being with each other, even as they, they greatly disagreed with each other. And it was just, you know, especially in this day and age, I, I look back on that evening and thought, um, you know, <laughs> can it always be like this? Maybe I had some of that idealism that that student had walking up the battlefield at Gettysburg and just, you know, can't we just do this all the time? And, um, and then I, I think the other public event, um, and, and those of you who may have been at Jepson at that time, remember uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, four-day visit, um, totally under the radar. Uh, you know, part of the terms of her visit was uh, were that we could not publicize the event. And uh, we were dying to and um, very much wanted uh, to do that. Uh, but she was at the stage in life where she was kind of struggling. I mean, she could still have her conversations, but um, she would not have done well in a very, very sort of public event or anything. So um, we had her in classes over the four days, um, a reception for her, uh, you know, a few dinners here and there. Um, uh, and, and there's that one moment that has become legendary in Jepson Lure of uh, the admissions tour walking by and seeing uh, Margaret Thatcher talking with a group of students and people's uh, the double takes were causing snap necks. As, is that who I thought it was? And of course, the admissions tour guy had no idea because we were publicizing it and just kind of, uh, yeah, this happens all the time. We get you know, <laughs> prime ministers here and things like that. So, uh, you know, it, it, again, they stand out for... Um, how interesting they were, but but also because they're reflective of what Jepson is, I think, in so many different ways. And um, 
So lots of fond memories, but I would, I would pick those out. So I, um, I had a hard time picking just one or a few memories as well. Um, one of mine, though, did have to do with Margaret Thatcher as well, but it wasn't because I wasn't here when she visited campus, um, but instead was uh, part of a um, Jepson at Cambridge program in which our students go over to Cambridge, they study for five weeks at Cambridge and then they go to London. And uh, I went over to London because um, Gary McDowell, who was the reason we had a connection with Lady Thatcher, um, wanted the Dean to be there at the reception in which our students would meet um, Margaret Thatcher. So uh, over to London I go, and as Ken mentioned, um, uh, uh, Lady Thatcher was, what, you know, there were there were discussions about her health declining and so on at the time, um, but she came to the reception uh, for our students, and there are many law students who are part of the the Cambridge program as well, and she worked that room absolutely marvelously. She spoke with every student in that room, and there were probably 50 or so, um, uh, and made each student uh, feel that she understood why they were there and who they were, um, and uh, had a photograph taken with each student in the room. Uh, and it was just marvelous to watch our students, you know, sort of gasping as they <laughs> had to say a few words to Lady Thatcher. Um, and they all, of course, did, did as well as can be, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful event. So I would mention that one. Secondly, I wanted to mention Prelude, which is the induction ceremony we have for our students. And every year, uh, Prelude is incredibly uh, inspiring. We have two students who speak, a junior and a senior, who speak at that, that ceremony, as well as a faculty member. And each year, I think, I wonder if they're gonna, you know, are they gonna do it again this year? You know, will it be as good again this year? And we just had it a, a little over a week ago, and sure enough, you know, they they um, uh, talk about critical thinking. They talk about their ethics course. They, you know, it's not fluff. It's it's got real content. Um, just a couple of minutes of a punchy message. Um, Javier Hidalgo spoke as the faculty rep this year, uh, and and he. He um, talked about his first year teaching at the Jepson School and how he, um, as a graduate student, and this is absolutely true of almost any graduate student, um, he didn't learn to teach. And then he came to the Jepson School and had to you know, learn to teach. And, and uh, to be as vulnerable as he was in front of a, an audience of new students, um, I, I just, it was a really powerful um, uh, message to them. Uh, and then uh, Lauren, our senior, um, spoke about how um, one needs to both be a leader and a follower, um, and depending on the context. Uh, and that leads me to the third memory that I wanted to mention. She was, Lauren was terrific. Um, and the third memory has to do with someone who's written a lot about followership, uh, Gil Hickman. And when Gil Hickman and Tom Wren retired, they retired the same year, and this was um, a momentous occasion for the Jepson School to um, have two of our founding faculty uh, leave the school, uh, both in good health, you know, both cheerful about the future and so on. So it was it was a 
a good moment. And they spoke um, at our award ceremony for our seniors. Uh, we call it finale. Um, they, and they spoke together, but separately. It was just a wonderful um, uh, sort of sparring match and, and collaboration between the two of them. Uh, and they ended up at the end, um, you know, holding their arm, holding each other's arms up above their heads, you know, as a sort of triumphant moment in which they were, um, you know, imparting their wisdom to our students, um, leaving but not fully leaving the school. Um, and uh, and uh, as you know, they've still been um, able to come to events and and uh, come back and give lectures and so on. Um, but it was just a really marvelous um, event to celebrate their terrific careers, the influence that they had on the Jepson School, uh, and their um, optimism about the future of the school and our students. And can I, you know, Sandra, your, your mentioning of, of Tom and Gil, uh, it does remind me of something uh, really important for us, I think, all to keep in mind about Jepson. Yeah. So when, when I came in 2002, um, I came into a school that had um, very, very smart faculty, uh, very, um, uh, what's the right word here? Um, uh, assertive, maybe? Um, <laughs> um, what I, I guess maybe, here's the, the way to put it. They were deeply, deeply committed to the Jepson Project. Uh, they uh, they owned it. Uh, they had created it. Um, it was their uh, uh, careers were to, were devoted to this. Um, and and you can imagine as a you know at the time I was a young dean coming in in the midst of this and and every minute uh, for the first uh, you know six or seven months. I imagine that I was some case study in a classroom of, of uh, you know, leadership transition and leadership failure. I mean, to to be um, a, a young dean trying to lead a bunch of people who know a lot about leadership is is pretty intimidating. Um, but I I really um, they were they were the reason I came to Jepson is to be in the midst of that. And, and uh, you know, Sandra mentioned before, and she's been, she's been uh, right in the thick of this. I mean, I think all of us connected with Jepson, with Sandra, a great deal of debt in, in sort of managing that transition from the founders to um, um, a really new generation of people who were deeply, deeply committed in, in different ways uh, to the Jepson project. Um, yeah, Gil and, and Tom, uh, you know, thankfully are still with us and still keeping an eye on things. Uh, Joanne is, uh, Joanne Chula is uh, up in New York, New Jersey, but believe me, she still keeps an eye on things. You can only imagine. Um, uh, you know, Al Gothels is still here. He was not here for the founding, but, uh, you know, as a leadership scholar, uh, he was very connected to Jepson from Jepson's very beginning. And, has played a real critical role in the latest um, evolution of things. And uh, Gary McDowell, sadly, uh, not with us, but um, played a huge role. Don Forth, so just, here's, here's a startling thing for the alumni. Um, 
on the call. It, it hit me the other day, and Sandra, you may have realized this a while ago, that Terry Price is now, I think I'm right, the longest serving mm-hmm. uh, Jepson faculty member. And I can remember Terry uh, coming up for tenure when I was teen. So it, it's it, it's uh, it really is, are milestones. And, and, and again, I, I want to give Sandra tremendous credit for um, for for keeping that on track in the midst of uh, uh, the evolution of Jepson over the last few years. Well, and I'll just add that Crystal is um, the second longest serving (laughs) for tenure when I uh, just arrived at the school. Um, So yes, you're you're absolutely right. Terry and Crystal um, are now our most senior. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very odd. And I hired uh, Crystal. That tells you how how far we've come. So, Um, and and we hired a you know a, a clump of faculty, new faculty. Well, I think of them as new faculty, but they're, you know, they will soon be um, moving through the ranks to become full professors before long. Um, and certainly they've made it through the tenure process. Mm-hmm. It's been fun, really has been fun. Right. Uh, that, that's both exciting me and making me feel old because I remember, <laughs> you, know, you know, Dr. Hickman and Dr. Wren were like my professors when I was here and Dr. Price was new as I was leaving. Right, right. So, uh, so you can imagine how that makes me feel. Yes. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <We> both, right? <laughs> um, but my kind of question is, is a little bit related to that. Um, do you have a favorite leadership theory and is there something you've learned in leading a school that studies leadership that has impacted your leadership? Mm. Uh, wow. that's, a, that's a great question. And it, to some extent, I think it relates to what Ken um, very tactfully mentioned earlier on uh, mm. about strong-willed faculty. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll mention a little story um, that, that you might find interesting. Not too long. I don't know if you remember, but the dean used to be on the first floor of the of Jepson Hall, and I moved into that room where the dean uh, was placed. Um, and it was Ed Ayers' first year. Uh, and there are other buildings named after Mr. Jepson uh, here, including the Jepson Alumni Center. And the the person who supported the dean was to the left of the dean's office um, so that wasn't really in a position to play a role of a gatekeeper, which is a kind of normal thing that a dean would have. Uh, I like my door open, so I'd leave my door open. And the summer that Ed um, arrived, he gave a lot of talks in the alumni center to which um, elderly ladies were invited and they would uh, wander into my office and say, could you please tell me where Ed Ayers is speaking? (laughs) (laughs) And I would, uh, you know, they weren't really uh, well equipped to walk around the lake. And so I'd drive them around the lake or or, uh, whatever. Well, it seemed to me that it might be better, at least after I got to know the building a little better, that it might be, be better for the dean to be in a different location. And I discovered the room where you can see my books now, where I am right now, upstairs. Um, it, which wasn't being used. Um, it too is a little odd as a dean decanal suite um, because Stephanie Trent it doesn't really have a, a you know a connection to me. We can look at each other through a window, <laughs> which is strange. But at any rate, 
um, it seemed like this would be a good uh, place for the dean to move. So I, I was a new, fairly young dean, um, knew all these uh, very strong personalities would have views about this. So I went to each person's office and I said, I'd like to move upstairs. What do you think of that? Um, and almost all of them said, you know, yeah, sure, that makes total sense. One person said, well, I don't know about that. Um, and so I had to convince that person. So I used all my persuasive powers. And I thought, I, and by the time I left that off person's office, I thought I had the person convinced. And then I went to a faculty meeting uh, and I said, you know, look, I've been, I've talked to you each individually about this, but I just want you to know I'm thinking of moving upstairs. Well, <laughs> the person who had some doubts said at the faculty meeting, well, the dean has never been on the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, well, yeah, I know, but I'm thinking of it. Um, well, I don't know about that. The dean has never been up there. Um, and, and so I just kept sort of gently pushing back a little bit and then left the meeting without really announcing anything, you know, that I was definitely going to move came up to my office or went into my office, sorry, it was still on the first floor, went into my office and Gary McDowell came into my office and he said, well, now you must move upstairs <laughs> <laughs> because he, you know, was rightly um, making the point that I needed to, you know, assert myself as the Dean and in the face of the opposition, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I had worked through <laughs> hours and hours of <laughs> conversations. Um, but at any rate, um, uh, that's just one little story that might provide a little bit of insight. <laughs> well, Renee, your, your question is, is a great one. And, and um, so here, here's what, what I would say as um, uh a result of you know four years as dean and ten and a half years as a university president and you know some time before that, um, and then also as somebody who studies uh, democratic leadership, leadership and democracy. the The thing that I'm very focused on right now is and this will sound like a paradox the the power of humility. <laughs> you know, I I really. Um, have come to think that we don't talk enough about the role of humility in leadership. Um, and, uh, you know, to the point that, um, you know, Sandra knows uh, it, it motivated me enough to come back and teach. Uh, one of the courses I teach is humility in leadership uh, these days. And, and it just, uh, you know, it struck me from my time in positions of leadership, um, I became more humble rather than less. You know, you become more aware of how much you depend upon others. Uh, you become more aware of how much you don't know, not how much you know. And um, and then, you know, from my study of democracy, uh, you know, just how um, necessary it is for leaders and democracies to uh, have some element of humility in, in their leadership. And so it, it, it's a whole tangle of things is I guess what I'm saying, it's personal experience, but it's also uh, from my 
my academic study of, of leadership as well. And, uh, and, and, you know, all of that does give me the opportunity to yet again, but in a different setting, thanks Sandra for the opportunity to actually be thinking about this and writing about it at the moment. Um, it, it just is of very great interest to me right now. And uh, this is a great way to, to act upon that interest um, uh, right now. I would add um, one, so humility, I think, is really important. One other word I would add is transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we all, all often talk about transparency and leadership and how important it is. Um, I think both Ken and I have lived it um, or tried to live it. Uh, and and so it ends absolutely right that personal experience is is well, it confirms much of what we learn about when we read the books and so on about leadership. Um, but I would, I would um, also add that uh, we need more in leadership studies. I think we need more empirical studies um, and experimental studies, or I guess I would say empirical studies or experimental studies um, that test our theories so, you know, we have a theory that transparent leadership is more effective leadership than non-transparent leadership. Uh, how do we know that? Um, well, actually, uh, you did mention, um, uh, Don, that I have done uh, work on leadership in experimental settings. Um, if you conduct an experiment, a, an economic experiment in which you put people into groups, you assign a leader or you have a leader democratically elected. Um, and then you have that person uh, in a public goods game send a signal to their followers. Um, it turns out that um, transparency is actually very uh, important. In other words, the ability to see the signal or not uh, and the ability to see whether the signaler is following the advice or not. Those two things are very important uh, in terms of um, obtaining followership, um, so effective leadership. Um, so, so there is some evidence that transparency um, is very significant uh, in a leadership setting. Well, thank you both for that. And we just want to remind everybody on the call that uh, if you have questions, please go ahead and submit them uh, to myself or Renee, and we, we can certainly ask them. Um, both the deans, you guys understand, you know, one of the things with Jepson is understanding leadership in context. Um, and um, wanted to get both of your lens uh, of leadership and kind of today's current affairs um, with through the lens also of your disciplines, right? Uh, when you look at the, uh, the economy, uh, Dean Peart, th there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Markets are uncomfortable. Um, pe people really don't know where, where, where we are. Traditional metrics are not holding. Traditional theories are not holding. Uh, similarly, uh, Dean Ruscio, you know, politics, a lot of the polls and the prognosticators are saying a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, kind of bellwethers are not holding true anymore. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty politically. Um, and, and even um, one could argue that democracy is losing some of its sway and is, you know, is, is threatened and, you know, due to the politics. So uh, if you each wouldn't mind just commenting on kind of current state of leadership in our society through the lens of your respective disciplines. Yeah. Sam, do you want to go first on that? Uh, sure, sure. So um, 
I do find that we expect, we perhaps expect too much from our leaders when it comes to economic leadership. And, and that um, perhaps leads to a lot of disappointment um, and, and maybe some alienation. Um, so, um, and Ken mentioned humility. Politicians are you know, not very, mostly not very humble, uh, and they do take credit for things that are not um, um, really, that they did not really uh, effect in terms of, you know, low unemployment or low inflation or, um, you know, low interest rate environments. Um, and then uh, as a result, they also get blamed for things that over which they don't have as much control or agency as the voter um, and electorate might think. Um, uh, certainly Fed policy, uh, I think uh, the policy of the Federal Reserve, um, however, has been uh, a little slow to come at inflation. Um, and, um, you know, whether that's an institutional failing or a failing of um, the head of the Federal Reserve, um, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, I, I, I would say, I mean, just sort of hazarding a guess, I think it's more an institutional failure um, as opposed to, um, you know, laying the blame for that uh, slow um, realization that inflation um, was taking off and, and sort of then trying to catch up, playing catch up um, over the last few months or more than a few months. Um, so uh, I will say I, I teach a course on economic policy and leadership. And one of the things I love to do is have my students um, uh, meet with Jeff Lacker, who was the former head of the Richmond Federal Reserve. Uh, and I have them read Ben Bernanke and Jeff Lank Lacker and you know come at yeah come at the uh, the last financial crisis, not the one that we're in right now, um, uh, using those two really different lenses um, because uh, it's not a settled matter um, as to um, you know what should have been done in 2008, 2009. Um, you know a lot of what the Fed did, I think, was really good policy, but but then the sort of follow-up to uh, the initial um, uh, uh, responses to the housing crisis are what's more in question. Um, so I think these are all really great leadership questions and they're great for our students to study and, and learn some humility from, you know, and learn that the world is actually an uncertain world um, to use your uh, word, Don. And I, I guess I would, um say a couple of things. I mean, one, first of all, from the, the, the broadest possible context, you know, um, my favorite new word of the moment is um, polycrisis, you know, that, that we, we seem to be in a, a situation uh, globally, not, not just here in our country, but globally of um, many different crises uh, converging. And uh, you add into the mix of that the, um, I, I guess what I would call the velocity of information and misinformation, that it, it is a very unstable, as you said, Don, very uncertain time 
where some of the things that we took for granted uh, just can no longer be taken for granted. And I, I think the leadership challenge there is, is pretty formidable. It's, um, I think to Sandra's point, you, the, you, the temptation would be to maybe look for uh, the savior in the midst of all of this, but the savior doesn't exist. And the savior might be pretty dangerous actually in, in the midst of all of it. And so you need uh, leaders who are um, able to uh, separate the signal from the noise, to use another catchphrase, uh, who exercise extreme judgment about what is truly important and what truly can be accomplished, as opposed to um, uh, other kinds of things. Um, I, I worry too about the uh, tendency of leadership uh, these days to be perceived as performance rather than uh, actual substantive work getting done. It's more what appears to be done rather than what actually gets done. Um, and, and maybe just a last thought, because I know we're, we're uh, getting close to time and people may want to ask some questions. So in, in, for me, again, one of the reasons I wanted to come back and teach is that in the midst of all of this, um, our Jepson students are experiencing their political coming of age right now. And I think all of us can think back to when we were 18 to 22 year olds and the impressions that we got of the world around us and the leaders we looked at uh, um, and how they shaped our view of the world and how they shaped our view of leadership. What, what is uh, worrisome to me is that uh, our folks are coming uh, of a political coming of age during a time when I'm not so sure I want them to be absorbing some of the models around them. And um, so I, I think it's a really tricky time. And, um, uh, you know, the world needs Jepson right now, is I guess would be my conclusion. To Okay, so for our last question, um, we're going to combine something that um, uh, was sent to us from uh, an audience member, along with something that was also sent in earlier. Um, so the idea of where do you see Jepson in 20 years? In particular, what new disciplines have come into the Jepson School recently? And what, if any, disciplines you would you like to add to the Jepson School? If you can? Mm. Great question. That is a great question. Um, I'll say in, in 20 years, I want every guidance counselor in the country to know about the Jepson mm -hmm. School and, and to, yes, yes, you know. <laughs> um, there are still many who don't and, and uh, um, that's changing. I think it's, it's, we've made a lot of progress, but I would love to see um, everyone pushing their high school students to apply to the University of Richmond because of the Jepson School, um, or at least in part because of the Jepson School. Um, we have started something called the Oxford um, Scholars Foundation. Uh, Mr. Jepson has recently started that, and I would love to see that. That uh, funds our graduates um, to go do a master's program at the University of Oxford. I'd love to see that grow and he would like to see that grow. So I could imagine um, that being something important um, as we kind of think about the future. Um, we've started a science leadership program and this goes to your point about disciplines, Renee. Um, that is a, 
fairly light curricular element that helps students who are in STEM fields um, connect that content with um, lessons in leadership studies. So they do a double major. Um, I could imagine um, adding more um, in, in the future. This would take a while, I think, but adding uh, additional strength within science. Um, so we have psychology, we have economics, we have political science, social sciences. Um, but uh, it would also be really interesting to have someone who um, does pharmaceutical research, research on pharmaceutical companies or um, you know, some other biology um, type related or genetic uh, research um, in which there are also leadership questions and ethical questions related to leadership. Um, that's an area where um, we don't have any strength and I could imagine uh, perhaps moving there uh, in the future if we wanna be you know, really sort of cutting edge and, and moving to a new area uh, of, of uh, leadership studies. And then policy studies. I mean, you know, I do a little bit of policy, Ken does policy, but um, we have faculty who do policy in the city of Richmond. Um, but, you know, I think we could build on that strength. Yeah, I, I would just uh, uh, have a thought or two, but just to um, underscore what Sandra said about science, I, I think she, you know, if, um, if we learned anything through the pandemic, the yes. The intersection of um, policy and and uh, and leadership and and science is one that uh, certainly needs a lot of attention at the moment. But you can imagine over the next twenty years needing even greater greater attention. Right. Um, you know what I, the the thought I had, and, and um, thankfully I don't have to worry about the next twenty years. I'll leave that to Sandra and others. Uh, I'll be rooting for you, but. Um, <laughs> But I, you know, it, it, I keep thinking of something, maybe I'd call it comparative political leadership. Um, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm struggling with right now is the decline of uh, democracies and the rise of autocracies. And, and, and it, it's not like uh, autocracies are coming to power through uh, military takeovers. They're being voted in. And, and I'm trying to figure out why um, there is this kind of uh, uh, sort of call for autocracy uh, in place of democracy. And, and I don't think we can answer that only by looking at the United States. Unfortunately, there are some signs that we can learn something here in the United States about that. But, but I think um, uh, I've learned a lot about how democracies move to autocracies in other settings. And, and I, I think it's um, uh, something that could serve us well. I, I guess the last thing I would say though, is if I have trouble thinking about what I can contribute the next 20 years at Jepson, um, I do have 20 years of hindsight. Um, you know, the, It's now the 30th uh, anniversary that I, I've partaken in uh, and started with the 10. And, you know, going back to maybe what we started with, um, you know, actually a lot has not changed um, for the good. Uh, a lot has changed for the good, but a lot has not changed for the good. So I would um, be happy uh, 20 years from now to see some of those things still the same. 
-hmm. but but definitely uh you know thinking about some of the things that sandra is thinking about internationally and in other ways as well so um so yeah good luck with that sandra <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you both, uh, Dean Peart and Dean Ruscio, for joining us tonight and uh, sharing your thoughts and having the conversation. Um, you know, uh, Newton famously said, "If uh, if it's if he's seen farther, it's because he stood on the shoulders of giants." And you were two giants that uh, that our school has uh, has stood on, uh, both the faculty and the uh, alumni. And you've you've made Jepson stronger because of your leadership. So, thank you very very much. Um, we appreciate you participating in the Jepson Talks. Uh, for all those alumni that are on, just a reminder, Jepson Talks will continue next month. Dr. Julian Hader will be presenting uh, on Monday, December 5th. Uh, so you can sign up for it via the newsletter uh, that Dean Peart has sent out, or you can go on to the uh, Jepson website and sign up that way. But we hope that uh, you will all join us next month as well. And thank you everyone for attending and have a wonderful evening. Thanks very Thank you much. All. Thanks very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.